You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast number 143 is, I hope, a treat for Handel fans and a delight for funsters. This episode features English Concert Artistic Director Harry Bickett talking about Handel's Oratorio Samson, written in October 1741, plus Handel's opera Alcina, completed six years before. Both works, plus the composer's glorious Messiah and music by Purcell, feature in a range of concerts performed by the group in London at St George's Hanover Square. It's being filmed, keep an eye out, Wigmore Hall and across the pond in the US at LA Opera and Barclay. Alcina? I know nothing of it other than a painfully detailed synopsis in the Cobb's complete opera I nicked from my school library 30 odd years ago, currently elevating the monitor in my office. Harry Bickett? has a slightly more useful hook. It is the madness of love then, or the madness experienced in love. It's integration of a relationship, yeah. I mean, it's also, you know, I have to say, you know, I, I mean, since you brought this up, I, I've been out with quite a lot of Alcinas in my life. I thought you were going but to I would say, but, bad. I thought you were no, going to tell me off or something. No, 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 no. no. I've been out with quite a lot of Al- Alcinas, but I absolutely married my Bradamante. And I know, and you know, and I know which which I would be happier with. Do you do you suspect that any Alcinas listen to podcasts? I mean, is there a chance that that they will crawl out of the woodwork? Any of those Alcinas that I dated wouldn't even remember me, so that's fine. Oh, oh, my heart bleeds. That's really that's painful. That's painful. Me and Harry don't only talk about Handel in this podcast episode. We actually end up talking about things that really annoy him. Even I wasn't expecting this. I'm, I'm quite intolerant of, of really s- s- stupid things. I hate whistling. <laughs> I don't know why I'm pursing my lips now. <laughs> I just, I don't know why. I just, it really, it really, ups- it just really upsets me. Right. I don't see the point of it. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing at you. I am actually laughing at you. Uh, is that because it's sort of not... Um... Well, if I, if, I, if I have a tune in my head, that's where it is. If you're whistling, this, if you're making this whistling sound, who are you doing it for? Uh, can you tell me who you are and what you do and why? I'm Harry Bigot. I'm the artistic director of the English Concert, um, which is one of the world's great period orchestras. Um, I used to play for them many, many years ago. I mean, in the 80s. I was a freelance musician in London, and I, it was the sort of the beginnings of the early music um, movement, if you like. Um, I was one of the organists at Westminster Abbey at the time, and I used to spend a lot of time in London also just doing everything, playing in bars, playing pop jingles, playing hopscord for Trevor Pinnock and the English Cup. It sounds so glamorous, don't you? I was doing this at Westminster Abbey, and then I was also playing in bars. Um, 
did, how did you wear that role at Westminster Abbey? That may sound a little odd, but you know, when I when I think of having that role, I think oh, it's quite daunting. Yeah, well, if you stop to think about it, it was completely terrifying. I mean, I think I remember playing for the wedding of Andrew and and Sarah Ferguson, and just suddenly someone saying, I can't remember how many it was. I mean, it wasn't that many in those days, but it was, you know, several million people who were watching or listening live. And I just suddenly thought, I can't actually even get my head around that, what the, you know, what that actually means. Because for me, it was another service at, the, at Westminster Abbey, actually not a very taxing one, I mean, in terms of the music that I had to play. But then suddenly it dawned on me that actually it's kind of amazing that just by playing there in Westminster Abbey, all these people all over the world were actually hearing you. At the time, was it? Did you do? Did you experience it as being daunting when you thought about the, the number of people who were watching, or was it only retrospectively? I, th- I think retrospectively, yeah. Because at the time, I mean, I did many more nerve-wracking services at that uh, at the Abbey than that. This was, you know, a couple of hymns and an anthem, and you know, and I and I, I felt like, okay, You're dismissing a royal wedding is a couple of hymns. Say it was also because of all the broadcasting, probably the best paid forty minutes of music making right. I've ever had what in my life. What would be a stressful Westminster Abbey gig then? Oh, one who don't do that kind of work. Well, our regular services, you know, on a Sunday morning. I mean, on a Sundays, for instance, I would have to do, I have to play for four services and give an organ recital. And so the preparation for that was huge. And a lot of the time, first thing in the morning, matins as it is in the, uh, in the English church, you have to play these enormous te deums, these enormous anthems. And there were some, like the Walton Coronation Te Deum, we used to do just as part of the service, which I would just practice until I, my fingers bled, because it was a, basically an orchestral transcription. So I would get in there by 7.30 in the morning and do about two hours just warming up so that when, you know, when the service started I could just like nail that opening without making a complete idiot of myself and we could get through it. Is it the most, I'm, I'm beginning to think that it's the most challenging sort of musical contract with the audience because as a musician you can't see the audience. Yeah, and actually even now, I've, it's funny, I find, I find the whole process of walking in and bowing and doing a performance, standing up and bowing and people cheering or not or booing or applauding, I find that I, I, I don't feel very easy with that because, you know, for 10 years of my life, um, I, I, as you say, I, was up, I wasn't even visible. I would play, people would come in in silence, I'd play, they'd go out in silence, I'd leave. And I loved that. I, didn't, I, didn't, I never so felt... where did you get your feedback from? Um, I don't know that you. I did really. I don't think I really craved the feedback. I mean, certainly, my, the, I mean, the choir and, the, and Simon Preston, who was the, was the, who ran all the music there, was, you know, a fairly daunting figure. I mean, if I didn't play well, I, I, I was told. I mean, you know, I, I got, I did get feedback in that respect. But I mean, no, I, I, it wasn't like I was reviewed and I waited to see what the Daily Telegraph would do the next day. No, but I'm thinking about what musicians have talked about in this, you know, during the pandemic, which is without the audience, you are. <clears throat> As a performer, you're denied that that sort of feedback loop. So, you know, in the moment, without an audience, 
you could well just be doing a fairly good practice session. You said that, that's what I meant by feedback. Yeah, well, I think, the, 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 uh, but you have to remember that a lot of the feedback you get, the, the people that give you the feedback are often obviously not the only people there. And actually the people that I'm, my target audience, if you like, often are the people that don't scream bravo and want to come and have a photograph taken with you after the show. I but actually, your face fall. But, but no, I mean the, peop- the people who just go quietly, you know, out into the street, into the night, what have you, and have been moved and, and who feel a bit better about their lives or are not so desperate about their lives and feel that there is something worth uh, embracing and, and, and loving. And, and, you know, I don't want to sound too sort of zen about this, but I mean, I, but no, I mean, for a lot of people, music is therapy. It certainly is for me. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm very happy to know even 10 years later that someone said, oh, we heard, yeah, we came to hear you. We loved that. I mean, that was great. And the so fact that there's a humility then to being an organist, perhaps. Well, I was talking about just generally. I don't oh, mean just being an organist. No, no. No, but I mean, certainly some of the most sort of life-changing moments in my life were, were just being in the church, of, not necessarily when I was playing the organ, even just hearing some incredible bird mass or a, something being sung on a, on a rainy, wet Thursday night in the middle of November. And it was just sort of transcendental, and everyone just sort of left the building, and we all went, that was kind of amazing. If they offered you the role now to be organist at Westminster Abbey, would you take it? Well, no. I mean, I don't... My life has moved on. This is a long time ago now. I mean, my, my life has moved... And I have to say, I do like the more sociable aspects of music making that I have now. I mean, as an organist, you really are on your own. I mean, even when you're playing with the choir, you're still 250 yards away up up a up a spiral staircase somewhere. You know, I mean, what I do now is, you know, physically with the orchestra around me and singers, and if it's on the opera, then it's on the opera stage. And there's something I love, making music with people. It's not nearly such a lonely experience as it was at the Abbey. I'm going to have another run at that question because I think I didn't really phrase it very well, but how do you think that you've changed as a musician since being organist at Westminster Abbey? Um, I think I'm a... uh, I think I, I've found that I suppose I suppose a lot of musicians are quite shy. I mean, shy in in, uh, in the way they relate to people, but they can find a way they can find their voice through playing an instrument. And I think a large a large number of of, of children do that, and it's a fantastic therapy if you like. Um, but what's wonderful about playing music with other people is that you actually also have to put your own ego, or your own opinion, or your own view aside sometimes to, to make music with someone else. And one of the things I love is that, you know, you can actually make great music with people you don't even like. I mean, how amazing... <laughs> I don't know why that makes me laugh. Well, no, I mean, but, but, how, but how amazing is that? You know, isn't that a great lesson for all of us? I mean, yes, you, and you look, at, you look at Baron Boehm's East-West Divan Orchestra and, you know, Israelis and, and, and Palestinians. You oh, know. Now, now you, you just... Now, now I feel guilty for having laughed. People, no, pe- pe- people who would otherwise be literally killing each other. Yes are sitting next to each other playing violins, playing Beethoven symphonies. I mean, you know, it, it's more than just a sort of a metaphor. I mean, it's real. I mean, the, the, it is an amazing way of, of people to, to come together and find common, a common language. Tell me about Samson. What I've read about Samson, what I know, is that Handel wrote it at speed, I think. Is that right? Well, I think he wrote everything at speed, frankly. I mean, you know, he, because just because, you know, you're a composer in the 18th century, you were only as good as your last piece. 
so you couldn't say, oh, I've done Messiah, you know, that's it, I don't, you know, who cares, I, I think I'm going to take the next five years off. You know, you, 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 have to, you have to keep on producing stuff. And also he was an entrepreneur, so he was not only uh, writing music, but he was like, you know, he, 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 he produced the whole thing. He sold the tickets from, from Brook Street, his house in Brook Street, just, you know, 100 yards away from where we are now. And he was selling the tickets, so he—if he was the box office. If he didn't sell enough tickets, he couldn't afford the next show that he was doing. So it was kind of an amazing um, operation. But no, he needed to keep on producing work. What is special or noteworthy about this particular work? Well, it's one of the few pieces that he that he wrote in collaboration with with Milton on a, on a Milton text, and of course Milton, really one of the, the finest. Uh, poets ever and certainly Paradise um, Lost one of the greatest pieces in the English language ever so to be writing and setting this text to music was a kind of amazing thing to have Handel and Milton you know it's like you can imagine now a, a sort of a promoter's dream to have those two uh, working together it also has a, it's a sort, of, sort of poignancy about it because of course uh, Samson we see Samson at the beginning blind and in chains, he's been blinded um, and is a captive. Uh, and he talks about his loss of sight being like the worst part of anything. I mean, loss of his strength was not nearly as important to him as, as actually not being able to see. Well, of course, Milton was blind. So there's something quite autobiographical about that. And Handel himself became blind towards the end of his life. So, the, and so there's, there's something very personal and autobiographical about it. It's also this whole idea of kind of the, the journey from darkness into light, which is suffused through a lot of 18th century works. But I mean, that's a, a very powerful thing that even if you don't know it, you sense this growing from the, from the darks of depths of despair at the beginning of the piece towards this almost serene acceptance of what he's about to do, which is of course to go in enemy camp, slaughter everyone, tear everything down, but in the process, be killed himself. That he was in a way like the first, the first suicide bomber. You know, I mean, he went in there and sacrificed his own life. And for many years, he was actually seen in, in mythology, at least, as a sort of Christ-like figure, someone who, who sacrificed himself. Does that theme for you resonate? I mean, is that one of the reasons why you sort of picked that up now in this conversation? Um, I've been thinking about it quite a lot, just um, just because the the ways I'm interested in the ways in which, even without necessarily making it um, very obvious, how bits of people, about how composers and and, and writers uh, are influenced by their own life experience. I mean, it's almost impossible not to be. Um, and I just find that the kind of subjects that Handel talks about, even when he's writing you know, these Old Testament stories, it's not, he's telling the story, but these were stories that were very well known. So it's not like the, the audience were going, oh my God, I wonder what happens next. You know, what happens, spoiler alert. Everybody knew the story of Samson, so they know what's gonna happen. But what's really interesting is that in the telling of the story, he, he explores really the depths of human despair, but also the idea of hope and faith and belief and how the, as a, as a as a, as a race, we find a way to get through these enormous struggles. And I think that that resonates with anybody. 
what research I've done about Samson is, I think I'm right in saying it's an oratorio, in, it's an English oratorio, possibly one of the first, as a result of the Bishop of London banning Handel from performing an opera. There was a ban. Or setting it as an opera, rather. Well, there were, there were bands in, um, uh, in, in, of opera being performed in Lent. That's true. And Handel was, you know, essentially a, a, an opera composer. He wrote almost 40 operas uh, in Italian for a non-Italian-speaking audience. So, you know, it was an art form that was, you know, slightly, slightly pretentious, I would say. <laughs> um, but hugely popular. And all these Italian divas would come over and they were like rock stars and everybody went to see them. And, and it, was, it was sort of, yeah, it was a, a very elaborate, extravagant um, uh, entertainment. And the band, yes, in a way, it did coincide, I think, with, with Handel's beginning to, to get a bit fed up with the kind of the, 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 the kind of frivolity and the, and the shallowness of a lot of that operatic world. And he was getting more and more concerned in his own life with social causes, political and social causes. So, for instance, you know, when he died, he left his entire estate to the Foundling Museum, um, which was an orphanage. Um, he was involved, you know, he was an interesting man. I mean, he, he would have, be having lunch with the Prince Regent, and in the evening he'd be talking to a whole load of um, Jewish, the big new Jewish middle class that had come in. Um, he, he was concerned about social issues, about political issues. And actually, the band really suited him because what he was able to do was suddenly start writing things in English in the language of the audience. You know, hello what a strange idea that you should actually be speaking to people directly in their own language. And he also saw in these uh, Old Testament stories, which of course suited the, suited the Jewish population enormously, uh, he could, there were also sort of other, other, other subtexts and stories to be, uh, to be told. So for instance, in Theodora, one of his last pieces, you know, it's all about religious persecution. And, and you know, that was a very hot contemporary topic as it is today. Um, we've talked about Samson a little bit. You know, a lot, a lot of these pieces, they were ostensibly about the, the characters in the Old Testament, but actually, when you get down to it, the thing about Handel, which always strikes me, is just how human the story is and how you actually look at it. And so many people say to me, it's so modern. And I go, yeah, because what he's talking about hasn't changed. Well, there are a couple of really famous arias in this, and, and, and the good thing about the 18th century is actually the really famous popular pieces are actually also great music, which you can't say of the 19th century, I don't think. So, I mean, you know, Handel's first big aria, Total Eclipse, where he's talking about his blindness, and he uses this analogy of, of an eclipse of the sun. The sun is his eyes, and the eclipse is the, is the cataracts or, or whatever he's had to, to, to make him blind. Um, and it's, it starts just with a sort of unison octave passage, just a falling phrase. Um, and then he, he sings, no, uh, no sun, no moon. And those phrases go up. It's like he's reaching, reaching for what he can see in his head, but he can't actually see in real life. And then the harmony slowly starts coming together as he starts exploring this whole theme about darkness and about, his, about the, the, the light and how necessary light is to human beings and to, and to life. You know, life doesn't grow without light. 
plants don't grow, or animals can't exist without light. And it's just a very, very, it's only 90 seconds long, but you know, it packs such a punch that you suddenly go, wow, this isn't just an intro aria. We're like, we're just like, we're just thrown straight into the nitty gritty of what this person's predicament is. to talk about Alcina. Um, opera is not my go-to art form, full transparency, which is why I like to think I bring a fresh objective approach to this. I read Cobb's complete opera entry about Alcina and I have to tell you, I felt as though it was a little mad. And I'm wondering whether you can either correct my, my impression or point me in the direction of a book that provides me with a slightly more um, tantalising synopsis. Well, uh, can I just say for a start, if you ever read a synopsis of an opera, you would never want to go to it. Well, this is the, yeah, this is kind of how I feel. I, 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 no, I, I've said this before, and I, I get in terrible trouble with media departments because I always say, if I, had, if I ever ran an opera company, the first thing I would do was... was would be to get rid of synopses. <laughs> I think so much detail that I can't really, I can't really. Sorry. When you read a book, you don't get a synopsis before you read it. When you go to a movie, you don't get a synopsis before you read it. When you go to a play, maybe you do. But I mean, I just think, why, why are you I having a premise or a challenge or a question? Well, if we, can't, if we can't tell the story and you can't understand it, then there's something wrong. And also, if you, if, you try, if you try and conflate, you know, four hours of Handel Opera into five sentences, of course no one's going to understand it. four hours long? But you're right, but you're right. In answer to the question, it's completely bonkers. But, you know, I mean, I have two small children, and, you know, to say, if, you say, if I said to them, okay, so there's this, this witch, and she lives on an island. <laughs> and, and, but okay. Alcina, Alcina's a witch, a yeah, witch, no. and she lives on an island, and she basically seduces all these men, and when she's, had, when she's fed up with them, she turns them into wild animals or rocks or waves. Now you've got me. Now you've and got me like, hooked. And, and they're like, oh, yeah, right, and then what happens? I go, well, then, so this guy, he's stuck there, and then his wife comes with, her, with his ex-school te- teacher to come and try and rescue him from the island. But his wife is dis- disguised as a man. And, and, and they go, oh, great, yeah, right, okay, so he's, he's a man, but it's actually his wife. Yeah. Then what happens? You know, and it's like, I mean, I tell you. <laughs> There's no question. Any yeah. kid that can get through Harry Potter or, or, yeah. or, 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 or Tolkien will find that Alcina is like the simplest story ever told. But what is the... What is the that's not a polite question, but what is the point of it? What is the learning? What's the message? Okay, so the point of it 
is that, yes, it's a bonkers story. It's from this Orlando Furioso, which again was a, was a huge, this massive, massive um, book that, that everybody knew and wrote, one of the great Italian masterpieces, and there a lot of magic things in it. So part of the thing was that there was a theatre here in London that had lots of magic effects. So it had fountains that could come out of the stage. It had two-way mirrors that if you lit it with a candle one way, you could see through it the other way you couldn't. So you could do this thing where people just came disappeared. There were live birds in the roof that they could let go at any point, and they'd tweet around the theatre. You know, it was magic. It was like, you know, the new high-tech George Lucas. Almost sleight of hand, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then these stories, the same thing as the oratorios. I mean, the fact is, you know, you're telling all these stories. So what is this about? This is about a woman who is clearly so seductive that all men just go completely gaga. However, she's a witch. So even though they're going gaga over her, they don't really know what's real and what isn't. Well, haven't we all been there? Speak for yourself, Harry. Well, no, I have. <laughs> I, I will speak to myself. And then you've got Bradamante, who is this, you know long-suffering wife who, in the book, has followed him all over the world. Every time, he, oh, he's off again. I better go and try and rescue him. So she comes back, she comes back, and he's always rejecting her. Oh, no, this one, this is what this one. No, 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 no. But she says, no, I'm going to stick by you. I'm going to be with you. What have you? I'll be with you. So you've got these two women in this man's life, and it's like this struggle. And they, I mean, he generally loves Alcina. He also knows that she's going to finish with him at any given point. It is the madness of love, then, or the madness experienced in it's love. It's the disintegration of a relationship, yeah. I mean, it's also, you know, I have to say, you know, I, I mean, since you brought this up, I, I've been out with quite a lot of Alcinas in my life. I thought you were going but to I would say, but, bad. I but, thought you were no, going to tell me off or something. No, 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 no. no. I've been out with quite a lot of Al- Alcinas, but I absolutely married my Bradamante. Right. Oh. And I know, and, you know, and I know which... which I would be happier with. Do you do you suspect that any Altunas listen to podcasts? I mean, is there a chance that that they will crawl out of the woodwork? Any of those Altunas that I dated wouldn't even remember me, so that's fine. Oh, oh, my heart bleeds. That's really that's painful. That's painful. Um, the other thing that I know about this is that, and correct me if I'm wrong about this. This was this was an opera that sort of helped elevate Joan Sutherland. Is that right? Yeah, well, I mean, Handel, um, like most composers, I mean, Bach as well, for that matter, sort of went out of fashion because everything was about new music. So, 17... Yeah, so in the 18th century, there was absolutely no, uh, no performances of these operas. And then when it came to uh, about 1920, I think it was... Dalcina was sort of dug up and revived in Germany... And then it was sort of, you know, seen as an interesting piece, but nothing more. And then, yes, you're right. I mean, 1960, was it 61, 62 or something? Richard Bonning, who was, who was married to Joan Sutherland, very keen on, on, on this repertoire, said, looking at it again, said, that would be a great role for you, Joan Sutherland. And at that point, Joan Sutherland could basically say, I want to sing this, this role. And every, every opera house would say, I don't care what it is, come and do it. So she came to Covent Garden and sang it, and it was a huge success. And that really then put it back in the repertoire. Uh, from then on. Uh, what do you think was particularly, what interested people in the 1920s about it? Um, I don't, I, I can't speak to whether they found some kind of um, uh, connection with it as a, as a, as a story or, or the way now we, as I've been explaining, we, we see it in many much more kind of Freudian way. Mm. Um, but, I mean, I would say Handel is, 
such direct music. I mean, it's such. I mean, Alcina particularly is such a brilliant piece. I mean, it's like every every number is a hit number, and it's very direct music. It's very human music, um, and I think if you're looking for opera houses, looking for new repertoire, new repertoire, as it were, you can't beat Handel. It's also you know a cast of five people, no chorus, small orchestra. It's cheap. <laughs> there we are. That's that'll be the answer. Um, Again, same question about an aria. What would you pick out from Alcina as the go-to aria? Um, you can have two if you want. Well, I don't know. I mean, the, even though Alcina is like the title role, there's the, the role of Ruggiero, who is the, the, her lover that's trying to escape, I think has some of the best music ever. And there's a moment where he realizes that he's got to actually get off, off the island. And he sings an aria called Verdi Prati, Green Fields. Because it's a beautiful place, this island, that's the other thing. The actual landscape of it is really seductive. And he sings this incredibly simple, simple song, just sort of saying goodbye. And it's like someone saying, saying goodbye to a lover for the, first, you know, for the, for the last time, or a, a place you know, emigrating. Can you imagine leaving a place that you've grown up in and, 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 and going off to the other side of the world and thinking, I may never ever come back here and just looking at this landscape and, and singing. It's almost just like a little folk tune, but it's so, so touching. And I know Handel, we know from his sketches that he worked really hard at those simple arias. They weren't just like simple because he didn't have much time to write them. He, he worked and worked and worked um, distilling it so that there wasn't an ounce of, of spare fat on it. it. It was absolutely straight to the core and straight to the heart of what he wanted to say. I'm going to exchange my third question for uh, a last minute thought, which is um, what would someone who knows you well describe as your three most annoying habits? Gosh, just three. <laughs> Well, I've only got six minutes left. <laughs> Bullet points if you want. Um, well, I mean, what is annoying? I, I, I mean, things that I would say were annoying or what other people find annoying? It's, the question is clear. What other people find annoying about you? Um, I, I think that, that some people would find... Sometimes, I mean, I, I, I grew up in a very disciplined environment. I mean, my parents were not musicians, but I mean, it was a very kind of Edwardian upbringing. Um, and I, for instance, when I first met you, said, oh, thanks very much for coming, you know, early to do this, this, this interview. Well, what I could have told you is that actually this is actually quite late for me. I'm normally here about an hour and a half early because I'm so terrified of being late. So that, I think, probably some people find quite annoying. That, that well, I, at least you're never late. I mean, I well, think I being never, late is, no, is well, annoying. Well, the problem with that is that I don't, I, I'm, I'm not very sympathetic to people who, who, who are late because I just I don't, get, I don't get it. Why? I mean, yes, if, if the train's late or you've, you know, whatever, but I, don't, I just don't understand. I mean, what, I'm now experiencing great waves of relief. <laughs> yeah, I know, but normally I am quite late, <laughs> as, as Rebecca Driver will say. Uh, uh, okay, so that's number one. Number two. Um, I'm, I'm quite intolerant of, of really s stupid things. I hate whistling. <laughs> I don't know why I'm pursing my lips now. I just, I don't know why. I just, 
it really, it really ups, it just really upsets me. I don't see the point of it. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing at you. I am actually laughing at you. Uh, is that because it's sort of not? Um... Well, if I if I if I have a tune in my head, that's where it is. Mm-hmm. If you're whistling this, if you're making this whistling sound, who are you doing it for? Right, right, okay. Um, and number three, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sweating. I'm really sweating on this. So you've got some time to recover before the rehearsal, because you've got here on time. (laughs) I know. Um, What else else do people find annoying about me? Um, Well, I mean, so I'm married to a a sort of of environmentalist, an environmentalist, (laughs) um, who's, you know, like an activist. So she's, she's, she's quite hardcore about about air pollution, about uh, resources, about eating healthily and all that kind of thing. And I think she probably gets annoyed that she, I'm, even though I've changed hugely over the years we've been married, I'm, you know, I still occasionally will leave the tap running when I'm brushing my oh. teeth. Okay. I know. Right. Okay. But so that, that, I think that annoys her. I mean, which is sort of <laughs> leaving the tap running. That is sort of that is sort of the question. And does she presumably, you know, sort of get back at you by whistling? Does she whistle? No, but her mother does. <laughs> well, I think we've covered all bases now. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to tell me that I haven't asked you? No, I think I, I don't. <laughs> I think that's it. I think no more questions. No more questions. Thank you. And stars Sun, moon and stars Are dark to me You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast Presented by John Jacob Follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter at Thoroughly Good, Thoroughly underscore Good on Instagram, and Thoroughly Good Me on Facebook. <laughs>